Hey everybody, Rebecca Wilson here, your host. Today on the show, we have Jordan Colins, and he has been Taylor Swift's monitor engineer for over 10 years. And he's pretty much done it all in rock and roll, from backline to crew chief, systems tech to sales. And he's mixed for people like Bon Jovi and scads of other big artists. When we spoke, he had just wrapped on Taylor Swift's rehearsals for her upcoming era tour and was heading out for six months to mix sold out shows across the US. And what I loved about our chat was not only his crazy first gig story of how he got hired at Eighth Day Sound, but I so appreciated the clarity with which he describes exactly what it takes and what to expect if you want to have a career working in touring audio. Plus, he seems to have just the right amount of eccentricity you'd hope for when talking to an industry leader. So I'm thrilled to bring you this chat with Jordan Colins. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, Jordan. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm having a pretty good morning, except they're diverting traffic off the freeway towards my street. So there may be a lot of audio noise. <laughs> I'm in a isolated basement room, so we're good on my oh, Good. Are you at home? I am. Oh, and that's PA? Yeah, I live in Westchester, which is outside of uh, Philly. Nice. West side of Philly. Nice. Mm-hmm. So I guess I know our listeners probably really want to hear about Taylor, so we'll get to that. But we always start with kind of your story of how you found your way into audio. And from what I can tell, you played guitar in hardcore punk bands, and then you went to OU. And what did you study there? <laughs> I have a Bachelor of Science in Communication, but I have a music theory minor. And the focus on the communication aspect was audio engineering and recording. So studio stuff, really, the technical basis of the equipment. Cool. Yeah. And that school is really well known for that program. Yeah. I went back and spoke there last year. In April, they do a little summit with people in the industry, try to recruit some younger folks for the live sound industry. Got a couple interested parties. So that was cool. That's good. We'll, we'll do a shout out about that program too at the end. So I guess then out of OU, you started working in clubs, which I love your LinkedIn page that, what does it say? Hold on. I got to bring this up. It's so funny. It's like a 200 capacity bar in a college town. It's ground zero, homemade flame emblazed, beer soaked wedges, mismatched power amps, milk crate full of mics and NL4 cables without the locking tabs. Slight riz in the mains, DOD graphs. <laughs> That's <it's> all true. <laughs> I actually worked at a club in college called The Union, which is uh, kind of the biggest live music venue in Athens to this day, I think, which is where OU is. The one I worked in originally actually burned down in 2013, I want to say. And I recently went back and visited and it's like a whole different world. But it was truly a dive bar when I worked there. It was upstairs. There was a pole in the middle of the stage. Oh, it was a Mackie. I think it was a 1604. Yeah. Front of house. But I learned to mix there. I didn't have any experience before that. And when I started at school in the program, I was worried I wasn't going to get what I needed at about the midpoint, which was, you know, the beginning of my junior year, which is probably a year after I started mixing in the club kind of part-time. But then I started doing it like three, four days a week at night because the shows didn't start till 10 and you got out of there at three in the morning, but you're in college, so who cares, that's right? That's right. That's right. It's kind of fun. And that's really where you learn to cut your teeth and to like really learn about trying to make things sound good on bad stuff. Well, I never, I don't think it ever sounded good in there. I mean... What was great is the music scene in Athens was huge. At the time, there was a lot of popular metal bands. One of them got kind of went on to get reasonably popular. They're called Skeleton Witch. They're still around, but they kind of started back then. 
ended up getting signed when they got out of college. And that was like the big pull and the big exciting night of the month for me, you know, but it was a delicate art of like, can you hear the vocals over the loud guitar amps? That's kind of what you were mixing. You weren't, you know, all the board tapes from back then are like keyboards and a kick drum and vocals, yeah. if there are any, but well, there's a few, but they're, they're, you know, but yeah, that was where I started. I did a few other things on campus. They didn't really interest me as much. I just mentioned the music minor. I performed a lot in college. I was in bands as well. I was in bands after college and before, you know, so music was kind of always the thing. But at some point along the way, I realized I wasn't going to make it with sure, the department. Sure. I just wasn't, you know, there's people that were way better than me. I wasn't really willing to slag that whole thing out for a career based on the kind of music I like. I knew there wasn't going to be much return. So yeah, that's that happens to a lot of people, but it does translate into pretty great for what you're doing. I mean, just that you're a musician, it it does help, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I kind of got my interest in the whole mixing thing, though, before college from a friend in high school who was really serious about it and then kind of dropped it. And we kind of went this way with it. You know, he got less interested. I got more interested. Hmm. And it was I guess I'll credit him. It was his idea. I don't know if I really would have cared about it otherwise. <laughs> But yeah, the progression from that was definitely once I graduated. I'm originally, I'm from a lot of places. I was born in St. Louis. I grew up in certain parts of Cleveland, certain parts of Philadelphia. I grew up in Texas. I, my family moved around a lot. You were already on tour as a kid. Right, right. So we spent the most of my youth in the north side of Philly, which is this, uh, is Bucks County. It's in a small place called Newtown, a little borough there. And then we moved back to Cleveland. My parents are both originally from there. We moved back there when I was like in ninth grade and I stayed there all through college and after. So when I got out of school, I started at a, a regional company there called RCS, Rock Capital Sound, which is where every mistake was made that you possibly could make that no one cares about now. So like all the uh, all the community fairs and the you know block parties and the like that kind of stuff. And then we we serviced two venues in Cleveland that are actually, well, one's still there. The Odeon, which is long gone. I think they ripped it out in 2006. And the Agora Ballroom and Theater, which is still there. Yeah, I think I've done a gig there. I'm sure you have. So I was the house engineer at those two locations for two years off and on when there were gigs. It was a day rate to go in there. Otherwise, we did all these other projects for RCS. But I really kind of capitalized on the club game there, even though the Odeon was a club. But the theater in the Agora was, well, now it's like 2,500 cap and it's an AEG room. But at the time it was Michael Belkin and it was locally promoted, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was owned by a guy named Hank Leconti, who's passed away since. It's like a generational thing he'd had in the family. It was actually the second or third location because once again, one of them burned down, as I recall. You're the common denominator the- I'm seeing here. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's nothing to do with me. But yeah, no, I, I worked in those clubs. I got to mix national acts sometimes, like the opening opening act or the openers for those national acts, or at least see what the guys that were on tour were doing, you know? And that was on crappy gear also. We had a Ramza at front of oh house. Oh, God, in I the, forgot about Ramza. Yeah, we had a Ramza at front of house in the uh, Agora Ballroom at the time and a Allen and Heath at monitors, like an older analog one. And then in the Odeon, we had a Crest X8 at monitors. And we had a Gamble series out front. I don't know if anyone is going to know Probably that not. listens to this, what that right. is. But at what point do you feel like was a major transition where you're like, wow, this is a whole new level? Was it eighth day sound or? Yeah, I mean, that, that took a little bit. So while I was working at RCS, I was also in bands still. 
I was still thinking music was an option. I joined a band from Philly from some high school friends of mine. You know, I had since moved away, but we always kept in touch. And we started touring in a van. They were called Jenner Berlin. It was kind of a post-hardcore-ish band. We were signed to a label, not a big one, but one from that part of the world. And we toured and we did okay. You know, it was a van band thing. It was fun. It was a good experience. But while I was doing that, I got a phone call from a friend at RCS who had left to go to 8th Day. And he was on the road, Gnarls Barkley. All right, cool. If you remember yeah. them. And they were opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers on their uh, the Stadium Arcadium tour at the time. And they were looking for a backline guy. And I said, oh, okay, I, I guess I could do that. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. I can. Yes. So uh, it's like the classic, hilarious moment and story. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell the production manager. Basically, a backline guy was stepping up to be a production manager because the production manager was leaving to do another gig, stuff I didn't understand at the time at all. But this guy calls me and he's kind of like, you know, I heard you're interested, blah, blah, just shooting the shit. And um, I was, no joke, on a Greyhound bus because I was going from Philly back to Cleveland because I had just had a week in a band practice with the band I mentioned and I was poor, you know, sure, and yeah. that's the way you got around back that's then. Right. And he's like, oh, you're on a, you're on a Greyhound? I was like, yeah. It's like, oh man, that sucks. I was like, well, yeah, it's, it's all right, I guess. I don't know. Not knowing, you know, I don't know if it's even a thing in there anymore with like buy him a bus ticket to go home like that. I know. I remember roadie. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's an older roadie thing, <laughs> but didn't get it. But I talked to him. He asked me how much money I wanted and I, it was a stupid, I didn't know what to say. So it was a, like the dumbest rate ever <laughs> in 2000, what was it? Four, five or six. I was like, I'll take $700 a week. For a major act, but I had no experience, so I was like, "That sounds." And he's like, "Oh yeah, that's great." He's like, "Sure, good, come on out." I did it for six fifty on my first. Okay, all right, all right. So, I mean, this is you know, it is almost twenty years ago, but it was still low, totally, (laughs) for a backline tech on a big tour like that. So I went out there; it was fine. I did the gig, and then when I left, I realized, well, I was on a bus. You know, this was only three weeks, maybe. And then we were supposed to go to Australia and they were like, oh, we're not going to fly you there. Sorry. That's just well, we'll figure it out. But it, it was only a couple weeks, this two or three weeks, this first tour I ever did. Got home and I was like, well, there's no other way to do this. You know, you know, driving the van all night versus and, you know, I guess I was willing to put the time in to be a musician. But I was at this crossroads when this happened where I went, well, I got to make a choice. And that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Same friend. I kind of got with him again and said, I'm going to start, you know, I lived in Cleveland Heights at the time with uh, that band Skeleton Witch that I mentioned from college. I lived in the attic. Still rock and roll. I lived in the attic. There, He's practiced up in the attic and there was a separate little room, but they practiced every day at noon, no matter what, or on the, during the week or whatever. And, you know, so that was, and back then I used to sleep till then right, right. <laughs> if I could. So it was in the morning. It was in the morning. So I remember while I was there, I was like, God, I don't know where I'm doing next. And, you know, my father was kind of being as they are about those sort of things. Yep. And I, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go try and work over at eight day. So, and he's like, well, well, how are you going to do that? I was like, well, I'll figure it out. You know, I was very confident about it, I guess, but I had no idea what I was going to do with it. You know, eventually between uh, the friend that was on Nose Barkley and a couple other contacts, I, I got in touch with a fellow named Jack Bosnick there, who's been there forever and still is. He's the VP of, uh, and he's the operations manager. You know, he called me in for an interview. I went in. I went in with a suit and tie on. <laughs> I had really long hair at the time. I looked like I didn't belong in the suit. You know, totally, I've done that. I've so done. 
was funny at the time, but, you know, like I was trying to be serious. You know, I had this college degree and I worked at this RCS was, you know, what you'd expect of a regional company. I'll just leave it at that, you know, yeah. and towards the end, paychecks started bouncing and, you know, things weren't going well there. So, yep. yeah. So I walked in there and took the interview that came back a second time, I think. And then I was like, okay, that's cool. Well, you know, we'll let you know. And then literally like two days later at like seven or eight at night, I got this phone call from Jack and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, sitting at home. He's like, oh, I need you to, I need you to get to the shop right now. You're going to get a car with this guy. He's going to drive you to Pittsburgh. He's going to leave you there. <laughs> this is true. He's going to leave you there. And this other guy's flying out the tour. So you need to do the gig and then you need to drive the truck back. Cause at the time, like having a CDL was, you know, one of the only ways to work at a sound company. So, you know, I had a class B, uh, so I could drive a 26 footer and that's what they had out there. Went there, got there, got dropped off in a room with, there's three other guys in there already because they're trying to, at the time, eight, they was pretty fledgling with the touring stuff. They had a couple of really big accounts. They had Eminem, they had Madonna. They had like some jam bands like Earth, Wind & Fire, I guess you could call that, like uh, Widespread Panic, 311, right, right. were kind of their biggest accounts. But this was a corporate gig for Mary Kay that I was filling in on. <laughs> so I went there, never used their gear, never flown, which at the time, which I haven't done ever again since then, a C-Series PA from D&B, which is the point source boxes, <laughs> which is a lot like turbo sound. Now yeah. I'm really dating myself, but... So I get there and figure out how to chain this thing together, put it up, do the corporate gig, drive the truck back, breaks down halfway on a Sunday. No. Don't know what to do. Eventually it just starts again. So I mean, the guy were like, let's just go oh for it. God, we get just back. Don't stop. Yeah. yeah. And then the next day I went home and I was like, well, that was crazy. I don't know if I want to do this either, you know? And then the Jack calls me. He's like, where are you at? I'm like, oh, I'm at home. He's like, no, 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 you need to come in. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I started working the shop, you know, and just like anybody else came in the back door. Or like I'd like to think everybody else. I know some. Uh, I don't know how it works nowadays, but you know you work your way up, and yep. that's that. So I spent, you know, kind of fast forwarding. I spent 15 years at Eight Day up until the acquisition by Claire Global. I started as a PA tech or a shop guy. I was a PA tech for a couple of years, then a monitor tech, then a systems engineer. Kind of the natural progression. Realized I hated being a systems engineer. Mm-hmm. Sorry, front of house guys or gals listening. Why did you hate it? Oh, I hate it. I don't too. want to get in trouble. I hate it too. <laughs> I, I I spent a lot of time and effort putting together something that I thought delivered a mediocre product in the end. Hmm. And when I say that, it it started out as my lack of knowledge, sure. But once I thought I had a better grasp on it, I hate to say it, but I I just am seventy five percent of the time I hear a show or see a show, I'm just like, oh, okay, it sounds like a show, you know. And it didn't interest me, like yep. covering a room with speakers. Yep. I, you know, me too. I totally agree. I, I just there's too many variables, and yeah, you're gonna have days that are just crappy that sound like that you can't win, and it was very defeating. You know, I worked with some great engineers. You know, along the way, I worked with uh, people that are doing you know way bigger things now that were young at the time, like uh, Demetrius Moore, who's has mixed Drake, and uh, you know was with Madonna for a while. I did a tour with Little Wayne with him as my first SE gig, you know, and I worked with some older guys in the industry that are still around some of them, but like I was kind of on the edge too at the time of digital technology taking over when I first started at eight day, you know, there's still a lot of analog kicking around, which I fully understood. And then when the digital stuff came along, it was like, I fully embraced it. Some people shied away from it. Some people still do. I guess I just thought I had to. Um, So one of the things I did was help some of the older fellas learn that stuff or 
I was became more proficient so that when I was their tech, I could help, you know, in whatever way they needed. And that's kind of where I went. And then I left the SE thing. Like I said, I was kind of burnt out on it. I did five years with Smashing Pumpkins from like 2007 to 12. As a systems tech? Yep. Yep. Oh, actually, I, I started there as the stage tech. Then I was, I've kind of filled most of the audio roles. I flew PA out there. I was a monitor tech at one point, then the SE for probably the last two years, maybe. Mm. And then I actually mixed a few shows at front of house when their guy wasn't available because he, at the time, lived in uh, Australia. So, you know, I did my final show with them, then I got married, and I thought I was done <laughs> touring because at the time, uh, Athey had offered me a project management job, which was, you know, an ops thing. Uh, at that point, the understanding I had of the gear and how it went together. Yeah, it makes you know, sense. Seemed like, Softer landing. Seemed like the logical step. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I was like, great. I got married in November 2012. And I thought, you know, okay, cool. You know, around January that year, he called into the owner's office at 8th Day. And he's like, all right. You know, and I thought, okay, well, this is happening now. You know, it's the top of the year. And what actually happened is he offered me the Taylor Swift game. Really? Oh, <laughs> so, so that's how you yeah. got it. Okay. Well. At what point were you mixing monitors? Where did you kind of land? And okay. Yeah, I guess I kind of, I kind of skipped that. So somewhere in there in the, you know, 2006 to 12, I left 8th Day for a few years and was freelance. Oh, I was freelance for the first three years I was there. At the time, it was very difficult, even if you lived in Cleveland, to get a job because they were a very small business. So I think they had 25 actual employees when I started and they were very selective because the more they added, the more they had to expand other aspects, you know, like with the insurance plan and all the stuff that I don't really think about. So it took three years to even be offered a job, but it took me leaving to get offered the job to come back. Okay. So I went on tour with a band called Disturbed for Eighth Day, which, you know, Not I like metal right? a lot. No, Disturbed's like a, it's a alternative or new metal band, okay. but- the opening acts, one of them was a band called Chimera, which is from Cleveland, or were. They broke up uh, about five, six years ago. But I knew those guys from the club scene, and I was mixing monitors for them out there because I was the monitor tech. And then another band called Killswitch Engage was the direct support, who I, was, I ended up mixing monitors for as well, which was my first time mixing in-ears, G2s, yeah. <laughs> all the way. Yeah. I was like, I actually, really, you know, I, I always had a set of in-ears from the first time I was able to get them with the, you know, what they costed at the time seemed like astronomical. I know, they were like $800 back then. I think uh, my first set of UE7s was, I got a deal through the monitor tech for the killers because I was his guy at the time. He, I think I paid $600, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, totally. And I still have them in a drawer here. They don't fit, but you know. I, I have the same ones. That's so funny. Yeah, UE7s they were, but. So I got a chance to mix in-ears and I was like, okay, I can get into this. Like, it's actually like mixing. It's changed a lot, you know, which is a whole other topic over the years. But like, it's much more isolated and controlled than like a front of house mix or a wedge mix, you know, which it just appealed to me. So you got the Taylor Swift gig. And at that point, what size venues was she doing playing? So the first tour I was involved in was called the Red Tour. And it was the combination of arenas and stadiums. It was much fewer stadiums than arenas. It was more dates than any tour I've done with her since. So let's see. I mean, I have. So you started when she was had a significant career. I would say so. Yeah. I, yeah I, uh, arenas and stadiums is big. Yeah. Was that your yeah. first time mixing venues that size? I mean, not that you're doing front of house. Oh, yeah. Still oh, yeah. Kind of stages. I never even had been to an arena show until I was probably like outside of working. When I worked at that company, RCS, I was probably 22 or three. The first I went to see Iron Maiden, like. That was the first time I'd seen an arena show, though. Right. So not until my 20s. So it was 
I had toured arenas before prior, but I'd never been in stadiums and I never mixed in either, you know, it was always shed tours or, you know, something on that level or theaters. Pumpkins played a lot of sheds and theaters, but yeah, that was the first. So it was 2013. Uh, I did the promo, all the promo, which was a mixed bag of the Grammys and things overseas and everything for the record that was already out, but the tour didn't launch till like, I want to say May of that year. Hmm. Yeah. And it was all very fast, which I kind of alluded to when it was offered. Apparently the fellow that was doing it had stepped down because the vendor had changed hands to eighth day and they wanted two people, you know, whenever there's like a focus that needs to be specifically paid attention to with the principal uh, artist, that's usually when they end up there, you know, or if there's like, a, you know, in the case of something like Taylor, like, you know, more than a hundred inputs and more than 24 mixes total, you know, that can get pretty busy. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the setup. I know you just came out of rehearsals. Can you tell, like, say nobody knew what happens in rehearsals. Can you just do a quick walkthrough of like how the loading goes, what you do? Yeah. Uh, you know, last year, for example, I did Bon Jovi and it's the same idea. That particular outing was a two man crew on the monitor side with, I mixed Bon Jovi himself, Owen Collins, which is my tech currently and has been for a while mixed the band because John has challenges. And at the time he was trying to get on wedges and there were a lot of them, like 28 of them. Oh my God. And side fills. Yeah. Like, you know, with the Taylor camp, it's all years. There's not a single speaker on the stage anywhere, but it's the same amount of demand with the number of individuals and what's going on. And, you know, specifically automation on the desk. I've always been a Digico product user since even then, I, I always got stuck behind one when I was a tech back into like back when the D5 was new up until now. I've always used them. So I kind of stuck with it because I really understand it. I'm sure I could figure another desk out to this extent. I, I mean, I know how to use all the other platforms, you know, casually, but not with, you know, super duper involved automation, which we were doing on Taylor and on Bon Jovi because of zoning with wedges, for example, there in a matrix that's sent to different areas of the stage and cues per snapshot with each song about what was open and closed and where the vocal was moving, all that kind of super stuff. Super complex. Yeah. So we had three weeks with Bon Jovi at the IZOD Center before that tour. With Taylor, we had six weeks for the band rehearsal and commonly speaking with her, that's about the normal. And then we'll do a production rehearsal of at least a month before the first show, which is what we're coming up on. And what is your input list like with her? It's 140 inputs. It's big. What is she carrying band wise? I mean, who's how many players? And There's four background singers. There are, I want to say seven musicians. We have a non-touring MD who will you know guide us through band rehearsals. Which is a musical director for people. Yeah, yep, right. He'll guide us through the uh, first couple shows as well. He used to be in the band, but he's moved on to some other projects and kind of is trying to tour less, so it makes sense. But yeah, it's it's a big amount of input. There's quite a bit of RF, as you assume. How many channels? <sighs> Man, I don't even know. I mean, with ears. Yeah, yeah. Like probably 80 or something. And you have obviously it's... an RF tech. Yeah, we have a coordinator and a tech. Yeah. They kind of work in tandem. It's WYSICOM this time, which is new to me mm, Yeah, for the gear people out there. It's, you know, kind of seems to be the way it's headed. I mean, it's wideband for starters, and you can feed it in AES digital input, which is another thing. I know some other platforms have a Dante enabled ability, like the Shure uh, Axiom suit, which is mics, obviously, but those have 
Dante. Dante on them. But this is, you know, a first for us. We're kind of an all digital system in that regard. There really isn't a conversion from front to back because the backline rigs are all the same digital. A lot of keyboards, obviously, you know, but, you know, anything like fractals or Kempers or modeling amps, you can take AES out of those. So it's kind of all in that realm. Yeah. And it's a lot to manage, but we get the right amount of time to Good. do it. You know, it's unusual sometimes. It is plenty of time. There's always been plenty of time with that camp. I've done gigs where it's throw and go or, you know, it's half that, which is also great. If you can even get a couple days, that's great to be prepared, especially without, you know, the band even like programming, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the biggest challenges, would you say, working with her and the setup? Well, let's see. I'm the crew chief as well. I have, including myself and two other engineers, so the monitor mixer, the band mixer is named Scott Silk, the front of house fella. There's 10 crews, so it's 13 people. And I've got to kind of wrangle all the audio expectations of the tour and do all the advancing with the support acts, which is nine on this I upcoming know, that's tour. an insane bill. I was just thinking like, the, and they're all revolving. and It's essentially a festival yeah. style uh, that we're doing it. You know, it's it's rotating so often and each day in each city might be different, I guess. I don't know how else to explain it. And it's just, it's got to be treated that way. So there's that really just organizing the whole thing. There's a lot more that goes into it than just what you would think from a mixing standpoint. That's like 15% of the gig, sure. honestly. Yeah. You know, I mean, that tends to be the way with a lot of gigs, depending on your level of involvement. But I kind of chose to be this involved from the beginning because for Athe, you know, it was a big deal when we got the account and it's very loyal to them. At, you know, now with Claire Global involved, it's an even bigger company with more resources. And I'm just trying to kind of deliver the same product we always have. So it's that's the challenge with the tour on that level that's kind of gone through some changes over the years, you know. Ah, that that's I guess my answer for that. Really. How do you communicate uh, with her on stage? Is that big, like when stuff goes wrong and oh, I don't, yeah, I, you don't even see her on. No, I mean we we have we have a whole readal comm system and and if something is catastrophically wrong, I'll know. But or if something has to change, I'll know. But normally we do the show and then there's notes. You know, I see. And obviously you have spares set up and everything, but are you even within eyesight of her or do you use video? No. Video. Yeah. It's been that way for a lot of tours I've done lately. The Bon Jovi thing was under the stage, you know, with the screen. Yeah, it's just how it I is. I almost prefer yeah. it. It's the side stage thing, you're kind of always trying to catch the eye of a person or if they're used to that, you know, which some artists very much are. I've worked for some that like have to see you, like absolutely have to see you, you know, or it's a big problem. I don't think with the way you can set a console up these days, that's really, I mean, there's so many ways to matrix talkbacks in and, you know, have way, you know, even these command channels on uh, microphones, buttons that you talk directly to the engineer. There's so many options. It's just, you know, put me wherever you got to put me, I guess. Yeah, for the set, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us any stories about, I always like to hear about a time when something kind of didn't go right and what you did and learned. Uh I've been fortunate where I've never really experienced the show stopping in any over across the board. Let's talk any artist, uh, a show stopping event that lasted more than two minutes. I have had it happen. Yes. Uh, consoles crash, you know, RF combiners blow up. I've had that happen. Oh, God. Um, I think having a technical background as an audio tech, you know, outside of the mixing thing, cause I still am involved with, you know, 
project management and stuff like that. And I, and I still want to know how the gear goes together and I still want to know how it works. I think no matter what, you can have a backup plan for any problem with something that's out with you. You know, a lot of guys do like, you know, say a monitor mixed to front of house, if their desk dies, that kind of thing. It works. It'll get you through. It's not going to be the same. I'm talking like I've had a distro, like a transformer blow up. Oh, my you know, God. Step down distro. What did you do? Was there not a backup? Just hot swap? This is probably right before the show. It was right before, like 10 minutes before the show. We had to basically unplug all of the Edison that goes into the, this is going to, I don't know if people in the listening can visualize, but, you know, generally there's a rack pack with the three phase, you know, L2130 five pin twist or something like that on a rack. Basically, I had to unplug all the Edison and, you know, every single thing that was essential and run off house power oh straight away God. into quad boxes. There's always a way, I guess is the point. Yeah, um, yeah there is. The only thing that ever happened that was... <laughs> unresuscitatable i was on tour with a band called five finger death punch and the actual service the building service blew up i want to say this was at in tacoma washington at the tacoma dome it blew up it literally i saw it blow up and that was it oh my god you couldn't do anything so you just couldn't did they did you the show was over it was over it was mid-show it was Three-fourths of the way through, and the band was kind of standing up there like, what do we do? Somebody just literally had to go up and go, ah, sorry. In the dark. I could have got – well, I went to the house guy, and I remember saying, I can – the tails were like adhered into the breaker panel. And I went, unless you want me to cut my feeder, run tails all the way to a different ser- – well, we only have this one. Okay, well, I guess we're done then, you know? <laughs> That's it. Early. But you always have to – I guess you always have to think about – what you can do in the back of your head, because you always, I 90% of the time you can do something to fix a problem, even if it's not ideal. It's true. It's a little bit of gypsy magic. As soon as I start, if I either, you know, I mean, on smaller shows, go out on stage or just start just looking at lights, whatever, it just comes. I don't know why, but you just figure it out. Yeah. So yeah. I guess it's a pretty big I, one. No. It sort of answers your question. Power is usually... Power is usually the catastrophic failure. When it comes to a console, I mean, you know, Digico's SD7 has two engines, but there's never a, no, no offense to Digico, but that's never a, uh, a flawless swap over if something fails. So it's just more like, oh, we got another desk here in this desk if you need it. Yeah, so complicated. I actually had a console get left out on a overseas air freight shipment in the rain. Overnight, it got left out in the rain. All the gear did. Lovely. Somewhere, somewhere down in the, uh, I want to say Costa Rica, down that way, between two of the islands, down that way. We got to the gig the next day. We flew. We loaded out. We flew overnight. Got to the gig to load in. Basically, flew along with the planes that were. After I palletized all this stuff, they left the pallets outside of the hangar. Huge tropical storm. Come to the gig next day. It was a D five. I remember. Yeah. Flipped it, and it was kind of worn away where you. You know, at the armrest area, and there's wood under there. It was wet. Oh, God. And all the square kind of like solo buttons were foggy. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew it was a problem. So I didn't even turn it on. Start, you know, the old hair dryer and all that and taking stuff apart, fans. And eventually by showtime, I got one surface section of the surface working. So one fader bank. One bank, like eight or something or whatever it was. Yeah. Yes. It was less, it was four, I think, on that desk. But yeah. Oh my god. So one and I we said, Well, we're gonna do the show though. The engineer understood. I was a tech, I was not the engineer. I he understood that this is what he had to do. I put everything on that bank for him. 
And then what happened was the test would start, it started rebooting during the show, <laughs> but it would still pass audio, but you couldn't control it. So we basically had to pull the artist off the stage, tell him, it's a Latin American artist, his name is Juanis, you know, this is what's happening. So just try and play. Okay, we'll just play the show. I mean, it was a big stadium show, God. like in, at the time, it was kind of a lot of people there to see this and like, you couldn't fire snapshots. And if you did, they wouldn't change, but we just, uh, we got through it. Uh, I don't know, not a, not as many people as understanding artist wise or engineer wise, but that was a pretty big one. That's lucky. We still did it. Yeah, that the artist is confident and could carry on. So I guess in our final sort of wrap up, what do you think for people that are starting out and they've maybe studied or they have some experience? Could you talk a little bit about what Eighth Day slash Claire offers in terms of don't they have a program? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So both companies offer a training program they're a little bit different because the product line is different obviously outside of the normal like a consoles etc it's more you know pa wise across all the brands that claire has under their umbrella you have five let's see cohesion you have l acoustics you have dmb adamson uh, i'm sure i'm forgetting one but there's at least five major systems and that's kind of the focus of where each training would differ over the traditional audio education because you know going into this industry, generally, you end up being a PA tech to start. So that's kind of why they are concerned with that, that being a big aspect of it. Um, but yeah, they both offer training programs. I think Claire's is 12 weeks, and they do sessions three times a year. Eight Days is modeled on that. It's a little newer. It's paid, right? Yes, it's paid uh, because part of it, it's a half day of classroom, and it's a half day of actual work in the shop. So it's practical, and it's, you know, and it's also a classroom environment. And it is paid. Uh, I can't speak to what that looks like. I know you're responsible for kind of getting yourself to whatever city you choose. Uh, in this case, it would be Lidditz or Cleveland and finding lodging. But they have opportunities for you know other people in the program with you to meet up and figure that out. But yeah, it's 12 weeks. You're not necessarily guaranteed anything. But you know, if you show the initiative and do well in the classes, they'll also... No, because you've been exposed to all these people in the shop. I meet what they call RITs at Claire, starting for roadies and training. Hmm. RIT. Yeah. I meet them doing, you know, basic shop tasks. We're not talking about sweeping the floors, you know, but you might be peeling tape off a cable occasionally. Sure. That's all part of it. You're building racks, you know, you're checking inventory in, you're learning how to deep prep gigs. All the basic things in the foundation of what I think any tech should go through, like much like I did, you know, at the union in Ohio University and RCS to kind of get ready to make less mistakes once you actually take on, a you know, a, a career on the road. And, uh, you know, they're very supportive of those things because it's understood it's a learning experience. Yeah. I mean, that's one route. Mine's a little less traditional with a college degree. It's people still go to full sale, you know. People still get college degrees and do this. I, I don't necessarily recommend it because my perspective is you could spend more time getting into the industry early than you would be spending for four years in school for something you don't necessarily need a degree in. Totally agree. Uh, I have one. And, you're, yeah, but and you save a lot of money and you're making a little save money. Save a lot yeah. of money. I mean, the club experience I had in college is what got me the next step. The degree helps, sure. And even now, I'm glad I have it because now, you know, I've progressed up the food chain and I, I'm a, like an account executive and I sell the tours and I do all the that kind of thing. But, you know, that's along with all the relationships I had on the road, you know, and my end game, 
eventually is not the tour forever. So, you know, the degree thing doesn't hurt. And a lot of the people I work with alongside of the head of tour have, have gone to one of those schools I mentioned. And you, you kind of have to, you have to do something. And if it's this RIT program or if it's, you know, which will cost you less in the long run than full sale, for example. That's right. That's right. I know. But yeah, I think it's just, if you really want to truly do this and be passionate about it, you have to be throw everything you have at it in the beginning, because I know I did. I used to be on the road for 11 months of the year. You know, I took every tour that came my way. I'm not saying that was for, for the best, <laughs> but it was just my way of being like, yeah, I'm serious. I want to do it. If it came up, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You, know, you eventually reach a place where you can make your own informed decisions and don't have to say yes to everything. But I think in the beginning, it's important to uh, show the initiative and kind of really you know, go for totally, it, so to speak. Totally. And you're, yeah. and you better love it. You know, you better want to do that because it takes that much to continue on in a career because it's not easy. Yeah. And you know, nobody wants to hear this, that's starting out, but touring does get old. It does. It gets old. And so do you. <laughs> so do you. I love the last part. I feel it. Is she pretty much the only one that you tour with and mix at this point. And do you do, do mostly account work? So I mentioned Bon Jovi last year. Uh, I took that as a favor to a friend who has passed away since, unfortunately, oh, David Scaff. He was with Bon Jovi a very long time. And um, when he came ill, they asked around about who could fill the shoes. And, um, you know, he was with U2 forever. He's Bono's guy. So and that's another, you know, artist where there's actually three or four monitor. I think each guy in U2 has a monitor engineer, believe that or not. So Dave was one of the you know staples out there, and he had Bon Jovi for a long time. So I I did it as a favor to him, so he didn't have to worry about it. And then last year I also did an artist called Halsey, who it's my account as a sales guy or a account rep, if you will. I don't like the term sales, but they went through a lot of people, and I uh, just kind of stepped in to help out where I could. But I don't really take gigs like Taylor's my main gig, a hundred percent. You know. If she calls, I'm going. It doesn't matter. I'll drop what I'm doing with whoever else. And everybody kind of understands that if I take a new project on. But um, that's the longest standing. I've been there for 10 years now. Yeah, which speaks highly of you because that is that is a hard seat to fill. It's come with its challenges. It's not, I'm not going to sit here and act like, you know, oh, look at me. I just, you know. You can act. No, I mean, I, I uh, no. <laughs> I'm, the last, I'm the last person to be that way. It, it's still a work and it's still new and there's still challenges every time I get out there. It's not. I'm not loading a show file from 10 years ago, for example. We start over every time. There's always something different that has to be considered. And I think that's the best approach with staying uh, relevant to an artist. You know, if they think it's the same as it always has been, it might actually be. And that's not necessarily good if it hasn't been working, you know, so. So I guess in conclusion, I'll ask you what I ask everybody. I always ask for a record recommendation, like something that's a top to bottom love the whole thing that people might like. I know you're kind of hardcore into heavy, but what what can you recommend? Um It's not like a it, what's your favorite band? It's like a Tell me what your favorite yeah. band is if you want. Whatever you well, want. Well, I'll do both. Okay. How about that? My favorite punk band hands down is is Bad Religion. That's there's no disputing that. No. Icons. I'm also one of these guys that has a number of like stupid band logo tattoos and stuff, so <laughs> There's definitely allegiance to certain things in that regard. What's your favorite record of theirs? That's tough, too. Let's go with an era. Okay, okay. So for them, it would have been the late 80s to mid 90s, which is like Suffer Against the Grain and No Control, which is not actually in order. Suffer, No Control, Against the Grain. All right. 
So those are your. It's probably one of the best. Probably one of the best eras of hardcore punk for them, at least, and and in general in L.A. And you know, there's a lot of other bands people can mention from that time. You know, but you know, I'll just go with that, and I'll pick a metal record. How about that? Do you? I love how serious you take it. That's how I am too. Well, <laughs> it's a hard question. <laughs> it's, no, it's serious. I'm looking around this. I'm looking around this room like there's a lot of stuff in here that could cue me, but I'm not. It's a serious know. question. It really is. That's why I ask it. It's because I listen to what people suggest. But the front to back thing's hard because there's some albums that are okay at points, you know. Right. I'm gonna say. He's squinting his eyes. He's in so much pain right now, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to say Colony by In Flames. Okay. Never heard of it or them. So great. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm wishing you all the best for the U.S. tour. Is It looks straight. Is it just six months or something? It's six months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, wishing you all the best. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your experience with us. You're welcome. Hey everyone, big news, cool news, take advantage of what I'm about to say. El Acoustics is offering four training certification grants for the second year in a row now, and everyone knows they have great sounding rigs. They've revolutionized Pro Audio with their line source systems, and now it's your big chance to take advantage of our partnership. So they're giving away four certification grants so you can get credentialed on their unbelievable gear. And one of the things about L Acoustics is they've been committed to using the scientific method from the get-go to shape their innovations. So don't miss this. For more information, go to soundgirls.org and type in grant in the search bar. All the details about who's eligible are there. The Soundgirls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Soundgirls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. Interviews will be available publicly in our Living History Project and for educational use and research. You can find the Living History Project on the Soundgirls YouTube page, youtube.com slash soundgirls. Hey, are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all their podcasts, visit audiopodcast.org. Soundgirls Podcast is sponsored by QSC, and you can find new episodes dropping every week in all the normal podcast places. And for more info about what Soundgirls offers, which is a ton of opportunities and career support, check out soundgirls.org. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Christina Hiramoto. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jess Benton, and we send a big thank you to our sponsors at QSC, who, just like at Sound Girls, wants to help empower you with the right tools, support, and services to help you create impactful connections. Find out more info at soundgirls.org and qsc.com. <laughs>